This is a Federal News Network podcast. Agencies are struggling to retain federal wildland firefighters, especially as the wildfire seasons get longer and more intense. Low pay is a concern, along with poor work-life balance, living in expensive areas, and a slow hiring process. But the Government Accountability Office says agencies are finding some workarounds to address the retention challenge. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman spoke with GAO's Acting Director of Natural Resources and Environment, Cardell Johnson. Low pay is one of the the challenges that was commonly cited. So when we did this work, uh, what we didn't do was sort of rank the challenges. We just met with a a wide variety of stakeholders, including the agencies and like 16 different stakeholder groups that also, you know, represent some firefighters. And so what we did is, you know, those that were most commonly cited, uh, we sort of put those uh, here in the report. And so, yeah, low pay is one of those uh, challenges that actually is pretty well defined here for at least the last couple of years. There's been a lot of conversation about the pay for firefighters. Before 2021, the salary that they were making was about $13 an hour. And so the Infrastructure and Investment Act actually raised that the minimum wage uh, for uh, federal firefighters to $15 an hour. But as you know, costs are high for everything, for housing, for food. And so being able to make a, a living on $15 an hour is pretty challenging for just about anyone, uh, especially people who are really putting their lives uh, on the line to to fight these fires. So, yeah, it's no surprise that, that low pay was a, a common challenge. You mentioned the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and in that they had this temporary pay raise for federal firefighters. It was the lesser of either $20,000 in salary increase or a 50% raise, but that only lasts through fiscal 2026. Was there anything that you found or that you would recommend for more long-term corrections to pay for federal firefighters? One of the things uh, that the agencies, the land management agencies are doing, they're working with OPM to develop a new occupational series for for, uh, federal firefighters. And part of that occupational series, they're looking at potentially doing some sort of grade uh, bumps uh, for this series. So I think currently uh, most federal firefighter positions are GS-5 or GS-7. And so they are considering options for raising that. Uh, what they will raise it to, we don't know. They're in the process of having those discussions. But that is likely to to yield some additional pay benefits for federal firefighters. The report talks about how low pay is the most common challenge for the federal firefighting workforce But it's certainly not the only issue. What does this report really highlight or change about the conversation around federal firefighters and trying to retain them to these positions? I think one of the good things about this report is that it is a catalog for the major issues for recruiting and retaining uh, while in fire. So if you do research uh, and say, hey, what is you Google? What are the challenges and barriers? You usually see just the pay. And that's very important, right? I mean, I completely understand people need to, to make a living. But what I was encouraged by, you know, when we got this request from the Hill is to say, hey, we think there might be more out there. What's being presented to us and what's often being discussed is this pay. And so we did a lot of work with reviews, talked to all these organizations to really like shake loose, like what are these challenges? 
So we thought this was good because now you've got a central place where all these challenges and barriers are really documented. And we're sort of bringing some topics to the light that, you know, might have been known, but they're just not getting a lot of attention. And so now Congress can say, oh, looking at this, well, what are we doing for this topic? And, and quite honestly, some of these challenges are intertwined. The pay piece is also intertwined with the work-life balance piece of this because it's sort of a catch-22 because like when you're, you're out there, right, you are working these long hours, you're getting overtime pay, and you want that pay, right, uh, because you want to be able to afford basic necessities in life. But at the same time, you're working a lot and you're not getting that balance you need. So I think it was really good that we put this report out there that addressed all of these different challenges and barriers. And the agencies, I think, are starting to see just how intertwined many of these are. So as we said, low pay was the most common challenge that was in this report. But there were several different retention challenges overall that you talked about. So other than pay, what were some of the ones that were most common in the discussions that you had? Career advancement was certainly a common challenge. And and here, firefighters, there's a lot of different training they need to receive to be able to sort of move up uh, in, in these positions. And it's quite difficult to get that training because fire seasons are becoming longer and longer, it seems like, every year, and they're super intense. And so the longer they go, that means that they're out working um, on the front lines and they're not able to go and take, you know, the training that's needed to advance to the other level. So um, that was, you know, an area that we heard a lot from, particularly with uh, the non-federal stakeholders. And then I think another challenge that came up often I think it's sort of similar to the career advancement, uh, but it would be the poor work-life balance. And with that challenge here, again, it ties back to the long hours that federal firefighters are putting in to fight these fires. And so not being able to take leave, go to doctor visits, so things that we probably take for granted and just say, hey, I need to take a day to or a few hours to go visit the doctor that's really difficult for a lot of firefighters because the fires don't stop. So you can't just say, excuse me, fire, (laughs) I need to take three hours to go to the doctor. And so the limited time that, you know, fire fires do get off, you know, they're trying to spend with their family. So uh, that work-life balance was really, really key. And then I think another challenge that was cited here was about the expensive duty locations. I mean, uh, the costs, you know, right now in the country uh, are rising for basic goods, for housing, for for food, for gas. And so we know that there's also several areas in the country that are very expensive to live in. And some of the fires have been incurring in these expensive areas. And so without being able to afford housing or other basic necessities, that's a challenge there, too. In fact, I actually met uh, some firefighters uh, in California who work uh, not for the feds, but for the state. And they, they pay a little bit better than, than the feds do. And they say that the, the reason there is, you know, the cost of living. They would love to become a federal firefighter, but can't because of the, the cost of living in California. Can you talk more about anything that agencies like the Forest Service, Department of Interior, Agriculture Department, are there ways that they're trying to offer incentives for moving or other ways that they're trying to retain some of those federal firefighters as well? 
in this report, what we try to do is uh, we also try to explore, you know, some of the flexibilities that the agencies were taking on to, to help relieve some of these challenges and barriers. And what we learned here is that in Forest Service, they're trying to also offer more access to federal housing, uh, which is subsidized uh, to Forest Service folks. And then we talked about the new career occupational series that they're developing. And that should be really fruitful in, in helping there. But they're also offering uh, incentive uh, retention payments of $1,000 bonuses uh, to people uh, to recruit and retain them into the federal uh, workforce. And then some of the other challenges that we cited in terms of the work-life balance, they're trying to see if like, okay, we can have a mandatory sort of rest period. So after you do a 14-day deployment, you know, you have to at least have three days or five days off before going to the next fire and sort of rotating those crews. And that should probably help a little bit with the burnout. And in the conversations that you had for this report and a lot of the work that you did here, did it seem like these fixes that the agencies were trying to do would, you know, be enough? Or were there other things that people were looking for to try to fix the situation a little bit further? It's a little hard to tell whether or not these will be enough because the problem, it's very complex. So, you know, as we point out here, there's not just one challenge, there's multiple challenges here. And so what we were really encouraged by is that the agencies were really trying to work very hard to figure out all the different flexibilities that they might be able to use um, to uh, address the challenges. So there are things that they're trying to work out. And I think what the the Forest Service and Interior in particular are doing, because they have the, the largest amount of firefighters here, is they're trying to also evaluate these efforts as they go along to see, hey, did this, you know, make move the needle a bit in terms of relieving this barrier and challenge? And I think once we start to see some of that data and the, the results from that evaluation, we'll be able to say whether or not, you know, these things helped. But, I mean, based on what folks said, the options being explored by the agencies should really help move things forward. And one other piece of this that we haven't touched on yet is the diversity aspect of the workforce as well. I saw in the report that in fiscal 2021, 84% of federal firefighters were men and 72% identified as white. So could you talk a little bit more about what the impact of that is on the firefighting workforce overall and what steps have been taken to address that disparity? They are working to address that disparity. The agencies are, are trying to you know, reach out to different diverse groups and organizations around the country to attract them. But, you know, they've noted that it has been really challenging because, you know, folks are often in remote locations and in locations where there might not be a lot of diversity. And so people can feel pretty isolated in those situations. And they've had some instances in terms of women firefighters where sexual harassment has occurred. So we know that the agencies are working to address this, stiffen their policies to sort of address workplace sexual harassment and sexual assault going on. And we think, you know, when those things happen, that should certainly make for a more inclusive environment. And hopefully they'll be able to get the word out to folks uh, about the efforts that they're doing. Uh, and that will encourage different groups to apply and become federal firefighters. The sexual harassment and assault piece of this, that's something that's definitely important. Is that something you that came up a lot in the conversations that you had? Or where were you really seeing that the most? 
that was not a specific uh, objective of our report, though we were looking at the diversity aspect. So it really just came up in a couple of the conversations we had with folks that said, oh, you know, there have been instances where women may face sexual assault and that can be certainly off-putting. And also, you know, being in a male-dominated environment, you know, even if the sexual assault hadn't occurred, that certainly raises a flags. Uh, particularly for women, and they're cautious about that because there's the potential risk uh, for that, especially being in very isolated parts of the country. Of course, this report focuses on federal wildland firefighters specifically. Do you know if similar types of issues exist for other federal first responders like law enforcement officers or other groups? Is that something you've seen as well, or is it just an issue specifically for federal firefighters? We didn't explore that for this review, so I can't speak to that at the moment. We may have some future work that actually would look at that, particularly on the topic of of wildland fire, but we haven't started that work yet, so we don't know exactly where that will go. Was there anything else that you wanted to touch on from this report or that we missed in our conversation here? This is a really important issue you know, very encouraged to see that this is a bipartisan issue. There is lots of attention on the wildfire issue in Congress. We at GEO have seen legislation being introduced to address wildland fire issues more broadly. In particular, one of the reasons wildfires are occurring more frequently and lasting longer is due to climate change. So there have been some bills introduced in the House and Senate to sort of address this and bring other federal efforts into the play to address the fire issue. So maybe looking more at, you know, weather service and any tools that they may have, especially predicting weather and doing emergency alerts that might help the land management agencies be able to predict how a fire season might happen or where it might spread. There's lots of eyes on this issue, and and I'm sure that uh, going forward, there will be some good results. Cardell Johnson, Acting Director of Natural Resource and Environment at the Government Accountability Office, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then 
sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. The world is always on. But you shouldn't be. Put junk sleep to bed. During Mattress Firm's Dream Sember sale, get a king for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin and save up to $700 on Sealy. Only at Mattress Firm.